you know, if you were to take a material science and engineering student, you know, take a class in civil engineering where you learn about concrete materials or try to get a little exposure to it in, in, in one form or another, and you'll find it's a really fascinating material and your work can have a large impact just because of, of how much we use of it. Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome to the It's a Material World podcast. I'm Puni, and joining me today is David. David, you want to talk about what we were just looking at? Yeah. Shout out to Georgia Tech first year MSc class. <laughs> Puneeth and I were reminiscing on uh, self-cleaning and self-healing concrete. Uh, and we just found out that Puneeth lives close to one of the only, that at least I could find, <laughs> self-cleaning bridges. So it was pretty cool. <laughs> what did they use? Did you say titanium dioxide? To yeah, titanium it? dioxide. And as it's in the sun, creates an electric charge to repel dirt and other pollutants. And then when the next rain comes, the dirt is loosely adhered. So it'll just be able to sweep right off with the rain. Yeah. It's right close to home here in the Twin Cities. So um, it's just, it was cool when you were looking at it to see, oh, you know, it's on I-35 West. You know, I've, I've taken that interstate, that highway so many times. So yeah, and basically our topic of discussion today was all things concrete. Specifically, we talked about like earthquake resistance and, and designing for that, but concrete can be used in a number of applications. It's used widely around the world as well. And David, maybe you being in California, it's more on top of mind, but I just wanted to hear your perspective and maybe some highlights or favorite parts of the episode with regards to earthquake resistance, concrete, et cetera. Well, I've actually been in California for, I don't know, roughly two years. and I haven't had an earthquake yet, so I, I wouldn't know. But uh, yeah, no, I think my favorite part of the episode was definitely the idea of what can make stronger concrete, especially especially underneath uh, high loads like during an earthquake. And so he's working on a material system of like uh, nano slash microfibers, which are steel based fibers that are interwoven in a random dispersion within the concrete. And so what it does is it doesn't stop cracking, it just limits cracking to very small areas. And so basically he was saying that it allows the material to crack in a way to make it more compliant. So I, I thought that was a very interesting way to create a more resilient concrete, especially because it's so brittle. What about you? For sure. I thought it was cool how he discussed kind of from the structural engineering perspective, how they do some of that modeling, like that computational modeling to identify or calculate the probability that a building collapses during an earthquake and how they incorporate randomness or uncontrolled factors, how that can be accounted for in the design of the building, whether that's weather or the weight, you know, occupancy, et cetera. So that was a very interesting discussion. And then also towards the end of the episode, he also gets into what material scientists and engineers can do to make an impact in this space. You know, it's long-standing industry, the development time, they've had plenty of time to kind of get things right, but whether it's the standpoint of carbon emissions or just the desire for elongating the durability of concrete, I think there there's a lot that MSEs can make an impact in. So I just thought it was a really interesting discussion and he, and he shared a lot of really cool insights. So without further ado, 
let's get into the episode. Hey everyone, I'm so excited to welcome our guest this week, Dr. Matthew Bandel, current Associate Professor and Associate Dean of Research and Graduate Studies at the New Jersey Institute of Technology. Dr. Bandel earned his bachelor's and master's in civil engineering from Villanova University, then his PhD from Stanford in 2015. He is a specialist in structural engineering with a focus on advanced infrastructure materials and buildings that withstand harsh environments or mechanical conditions. He's also the recipient of the NSF Early Career Development Award and received the prestigious NSF Graduate Research Fellowship Award during his PhD, and he holds a professional engineer license. Matt, thanks so much for coming on the show. We're super excited to chat with you today. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to talking with you. Awesome. So yeah, let's start off by discussing your inspiration for going into civil engineering. Are there any particular stories or pieces of inspiration that really sold you on this path? Sure. So I think like any sort of child um, that gets interested in engineering, I started out playing a lot with Legos, um, Connects, and, and those sorts of things. and you know, I think the field of civil engineering, you know, was particularly interesting to me because civil engineers deal with kind of everything that we use on a very basic level, the roads that we drive on, the buildings that we live and work in, when you wake up and brush your teeth, you know, you're, you're relying on clean water. And so I think civil engineering was just sort of the right fit for me as I was trying to figure out what field of engineering. As I kind of continued on, one of the things that I realized that I really liked about civil engineering was was that it combined a lot of different areas that I was really interested in. So my work now is largely kind of spans between what I would call engineering mechanics on the structural engineering side, and then materials as well. So I'm really interested in how we can use new materials that are being developed for civil infrastructure and applying those in sort of real world settings to improve our infrastructure. So I'm just curious then when you're kind of deciding on your major or even, you know, advanced studies to pursue, did materials engineering ever potentially come up as like something to focus on? Or how did you kind of arrive at those decisions at at each point in time? Yeah, I don't know if there was a particular event that that sort of sold me on it. When I was looking at different graduate schools um, and I decided to get my PhD at Stanford, I worked with a with a faculty member there named Sarah Billington, and she sort of spanned in between a few different areas and was doing some really interesting work that crossed into materials engineering, structural engineering. There were some students that uh, had backgrounds in, in chemical engineering. So I really liked that sort of interdisciplinary area where I could be exposed to a few different sort of backgrounds and really harness everything together to sort of explore my engineering interests. Regarding your work then, um, we've seen some devastating earthquakes, such as the recent one in Turkey, where your work in particular could have made an impact. So you were looking into earthquake resistance of new formulations of concrete. Can you just describe the differences of this material you're working with versus the traditionally used concrete? Sure. So concrete is a brittle material. You know, it's very much like chalk. It's made up of a few different constituents, primarily cement. Um, and water, which forms our, when you mix those two materials together, you get a glue-like um, system. And then we use varying levels of aggregates from sort of large crushed stone down to smaller sand particles. Um, and there's different additives that can be added as well. 
um, to sort of change um, its its formulation in a fresh state and then uh, some of its hardened properties as well. But largely speaking, advances that have been made in concrete materials has largely been to do one of two things. One is to increase the durability. So from environmental conditioning, you know, um, try to limit the amount of damage that we see during like freezing and thawing cycles or due to um, uh, the ingress of chlorides, these sorts of things. Um, and the other sort of large area of advancement has been in improving its compressive strength. So generally speaking, when we use concrete, it's reinforced with steel. And so we rely on the concrete for its compressive properties and the steel for its tensile properties. But the materials that I study have been around for quite a while, but they've sort of taken off over the last 10 to 15 years. And you know, broadly speaking, they're known as ducto concretes or fiber reinforced concrete. And basically what we do is we take fibers uh, that might be made out of steel or um, some sort of polymer material. Those fibers are anywhere on the order of magnitude of, say, half an inch to two inches, you know, depending on the fibers that you might use. And typically, they take about take, we use about 2% by volume in the concrete mix. And there's been a lot of work on the materials engineering side to develop formulations of these concrete systems that have really excellent tensile properties, um, such that when a crack forms in a concrete system, with these fiber-reinforced concretes, the cracks stay really tight and narrow. And so you, what you can sort of imagine is as these cracks develop in, a, in the system, the fibers pick up the load that typically we would rely on large rebars to take on. And so by having this sort of random network of fibers, we can really limit the amount of damage that we have in concrete materials. So in, in any event, these fiber-reinforced concretes, by having this, this ability to restrain damage, we can really sort of offer new ways to design materials to resist different types of loading. So earthquakes, you know, being a predominant one where even though the annual risk is relatively low, the earthquake comes, it causes significant damage um, to our to our infrastructure and to our building stock. And so by using these 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 new fiber reinforced materials, at a in a whole building system or a whole bridge system, we have the potential to really limit damage, get people back into uh, buildings or back on their on over you know the highway system, and uh, and really improve you know our recovery time and resilience. So for this technology, could you maybe dive deeper into whether the benefit is that it's more resistant to crack in general, or that by creating these micro fractures that are then uh, like restrained by the fibers, the concrete may be able to crack more, but the cracks are so small that it is more resilient overall. What, what is the overall benefit of like the way that this technology works for uh, like earthquake resistance or like stress uh, incidents? Sure. So it depends on the on sort of the level of loading. So under what I would call like normal operating conditions, um, or even like small to moderate levels of intensity of damage. When those, you know, inevitably we get cracking in concrete, that can cause be caused by a number of things. But if we're particularly talking about like mechanical loading or some sort of physical uh, load that's being applied to it, what those what those cracks do is they, or what those fibers do rather, is they limit the width of those cracks, which, you know, before we get sort of crack localization is the phrase that we use. What that ultimately does is it allows the, the concrete and the rebar, we will still use rebar for you know all intents and purposes in, in most structural settings, but it allows them to deform compatibly much better. And so it sort of 
gives us a, a more uniform pattern of damage and more uniform distribution of, of stresses and strains. And so that those are some of the main benefits to the to to having this multiple cracking that that occurs. From your work or from your studies, are there any kind of quantifiable results that you can share with us in terms of that, you know, the traditionally used concrete versus uh, you know, this kind of this fiber reinforced material um, in terms of earthquake resistance or compressive stresses, any of those material properties that you just mentioned? Yeah. So if I were to to think of like, so so this is this podcast is is geared towards people who are, you know, have the material science and engineering background. So we're familiar with stresses and strains. You know, traditional concrete might have a tensile strength of 400 to 600 PSI. So it's it, it's relatively small in comparison to its compressive strength, which is on the order of magnitude of say five, six, seven thousand psi. So it's you know roughly a factor of ten difference between compression and tension. With these fiber reinforced materials, it's not so much that you get higher strengths, which you can formulate them to have that sort of property, but really the benefit is that it it strains a lot more, and so it it has almost like a plastic behavior. So if you look at a traditional concrete material in direct tension, it looks exactly, you know, it's just a totally brittle material. You you reach the cracking strength and then it just drops off right after that point. With these fiber reinforced concretes, you know, you might get say a hundred to a thousand times more, you know, strain capacity. And so it it almost behaves, it's not as ductile as steel, but we can get to like sort of the same levels of strain that we would expect to see in our steel reinforcement in um, under sort of service or even um, above service levels. And so that allows us to really take advantage of the material to a much higher degree than we would otherwise. So now maybe going back around to the earthquake resistance, as a civil engineer, maybe how can we calculate the probability that a building will collapse? And especially with two types of randomness. First is the randomness of like the position of the building the weather, et cetera, number of people it holds, but then also the randomness of your structure that you've said. So now that these fibers are now maybe more randomly oriented, how can we as materials engineers or engineers in general account for some of these randomness to give a probability uh, and kind of indicate the benefits of this new type of material system? Sure. So in the field of structural engineering, we use a range of different computational models um, You know that, that basically build on finite element methods and, and these sorts of things. And effectively what we do is we make a, a model of a, of a building frame in, a, in sort of simplified terms. And what we do is we apply a, a ground motion recording, which basically, you know, so there's an earthquake that occurs, um, there are sensors that record the acceleration over time that, that goes with that. And effectively what we do is we take that ground motion recording and we apply it to our computer model. And we have lots of records of these, you know, going back decades and also in different locations in the world, right? So what you might see, say, in Alaska, it might be a different ground shaking than what you might see in Southern California or, you know, in Oklahoma or something like that. And basically what we can do is take these ground motions, um, apply them to our computer model, and we can look at ground motions at different levels of intensity. So we can apply... A, a smaller magnitude earthquake up to a much larger magnitude earthquake in our computer model. And what we basically do is we we do this a, a number of times, hundreds or, or thousands of times at different levels of intensity. And what we sort of watch is how many of our buildings 
collapse in our computer simulations. And so, so maybe what we do is we um, we look at uh, the 1994 Northridge earthquake, and that causes causes no collapse, collapses at a particular intensity. But the 1989 Loma Prieta earthquake causes a collapse, right, in our computer model. And so what we do is we basically count up the number of collapses we see at each intensity relative to the number that don't collapse. Um, and so what that gives us is sort of a, a look at from small levels of intensity up to very large levels of intensity, what's the percentage or what's the probability that we might see a, a, a collapse in our in our structure. So we combine sort of the computational tools that we develop in combination with past earthquake recordings to sort of pick up on how many buildings might collapse. Now, in terms of randomness, what that sort of, we have two ways to um, simulate randomness. One is we look at sort of the um, the randomness on the ground motion side. So that's the, I guess, you could, uh, rephrasing back to your question, it might deal a little bit more with the environment that we're particularly looking at. In this case, we're really thinking of like, the actual attenuation of the ground motion waves um, as they hit our building. And then the other way that we can think about randomness is the randomness in our materials, the randomness in our computational models. And so what we can do is sort of simulate those, those structures with different input parameters to say, okay, you know, if this is the range of material properties that I might expect, how does that influence the, you know, the probability of collapse or the resilience that we have of a building? I would love to now dive into the scope in which concrete is used around the world. Obviously, it's just used widely, but I I wanted to see if you can just provide context in terms of like volume and what that also means from the global carbon emissions standpoint, since just in general, sustainability has been a topic of conversation for us as well as just so many people around the world. Yeah, so... So you're right. Concrete's used a lot. Um, we use it more than any material other than water. So, like in, in terms of volume of material, concrete we just we produce a lot of it. In certain parts of the world, we can only build with certain materials, right? And the nice thing about concrete is it can largely be made with local materials. So you don't have to ship things from certain parts of the world, you know, from halfway around the world to uh, to get there. And so, because we use a lot of it, it is associated with quite a bit of carbon emissions. Um, so, you know, it's roughly seven to eight percent. You know, the number sort of varies a little bit, but it, it's it's high up there on the list. You know, the production of of um, cement and concrete is associated with, you know, with, with about that percentage. And so what that means from from like the standpoint of research that I'm interested in is some of the questions that I think about are if we're currently designing buildings to last, say, 50 years, you know, if we can double or triple that that lifespan that does a lot for sort of the the impact that we have, and so even though we might, you know, maybe we use a little bit more of a material up front or something that's a little bit more carbon intensive. If it if over the, the lifespan you double, triple, quadruple the the service life of something, and we don't have to repair it or we don't have to fix it when it gets damaged from a natural hazard, you know, that mitigates the life cycle impact that we have from the from the um, from our construction. I'm also I, I'm also involved in a, in a few other projects, largely in a sort of secondary role, but I'm looking at different low carbon concrete materials. I work with some experts in, in, in that area as well. Basically, you know, trying to look at ways that we can use alternative binders to to mitigate the the initial impacts that we have and try to bring down those carbon emissions from at the start of construction. So 
if, like you said, a building only lasts 50 years, what can we do from like a material science point of view or maybe even a design point of view to extend that lifetime to like 150 years? There's a few things. So one is, you know, just generally speaking, good construction practices. So a lot of times, you know, there's a push to make things get constructed in a much faster, <laughs> faster way, right? Somebody, somebody's um, paying money to have something built. They want it as soon as possible. Um, but sometimes there's, you know, there's, there's really simple things that we can do in the construction and to properly cure our concrete and um, so that it will last longer, right? You know, everybody talks about some of the, the concrete that Romans used and whatnot. And it's not that they necessarily had some particular secret that we that we don't have. We use a lot of the, <laughs> the same technologies today, but the reason why, uh, you know, there's there's a range of reasons why it, why it lasted. Um, and we can make our concrete to last quite a bit longer. And uh, there's constantly advances in trying to look at alternative materials to either supplement our cement or totally replace it. And, you know, some of these systems have, have a lot of real promise in in sort of improving the durability and uh, and reducing the um, initial carbon impacts of our uh, of our concrete materials. So, for concrete, is the primary like carbon expense in the cement, not the aggregate? Uh, and are all the focuses focused on how to source new, more si- sustainable cement? Yeah. So, you know, I, I I don't know the number off the top of my head with just because I I'm a little bit more secondary secondarily involved with some of this stuff, and it's not totally my expertise but yes it's it's uh well vast vast majority is associated with the production of cement because there's it's a very heat intensive process to produce that and it also um by when you make cement you just the chemical process naturally um emits carbons results in carbon emissions we do look uh aggregates is is another important area mostly because it occupies a large volume of our concrete and so there's considerations for you know, just there's a there's a limited stockpile of good quality aggregates that we can use for our concrete, and so it's an important area of research just from that. So that I've done some work with what's called recycled aggregate, which involves taking buildings, you demolish it, you break up the concrete, and you use that old concrete as aggregate for the new concrete. And so that's definitely a, um, an interesting area. But it, it yeah, it's largely that if you're talking particularly about carbons, carbon emissions rather. Um, it's it's largely the production of cement. So when it comes to material selection, there's sometimes like a give and take when you're when you're trying to identify the appropriate properties. Sometimes you're sacrificing something else. I'm wondering if that's the case here when you're talking about you know the aggregates or the additives. If you want to go for greater durability or you know make it long standing. Are there properties that you have to sacrifice? I'm just wondering, like, for extreme environments or just designing for, let's say, designing for earthquake resistance, does there is there sometimes a sacrifice for durability in that regard, or or no? Not necessarily. Like, you know, if, if you were to if you were to look at them in two buckets in terms of, um, say, durability and the resistance to natural hazards, you're not necessarily making trade offs there. You know, you can get good mechanical performance while also getting really good environmental conditioning and oftentimes they go they go hand in hand effectively as you get sort of denser microstructure you you wind up having um improved properties on both ends you know we we definitely do sort of tailor our concrete formulations based on the use case that we consider right 
So the concrete that's used on the sidewalk outside of your home is not going to be the same type of material that's going to be used to build um, the next you know, tall building in, in Chicago or, or whatever it might be. And so we, we definitely look at the, the use cases. One of the things that we often wind up, that often happens in the construction industry is, you know, people are kind of, are in, in, like in most industries, uh, contractors are afraid of being sued, right? So they don't want to pour a lot of concrete. And then it, it won't hit its, say, specified strength or specified durability um, properties. And so what they wind up doing is they just, they add way too much cementitious material. And so, you know, so, so that that influences things quite a bit, you know, so we, so we sort of overuse or it's, it's sort of overbuilt in comparison to what it actually needs to be. And so I, I think one of the big fields of research is, you know, just as we use some of these new materials, just really quantifying not necessarily lower limits, but upper limits as well, upper limits on on sort of the properties that we specify such that we're taking advantage of the materials as best as we can. So I know, and previously you, you even talked about the importance of construction best practices almost. And so I was just wondering, are there standards in place, you know, that like contractors can follow or what does that look like? Because I know you were talking about like upper upper specification limits versus, you know, at a minimum for construction, is there any standards to follow or is that kind of just left up to the discretion of the contractor and the specific projects? Yeah, so I think historically building codes and um, have largely been written in such a way that says the strength shall be at least X, you know, the compressive strength shall be at least X. And I think there is definitely a push in the industry to develop things that we call more performance-based. And so what we're trying to do is is make things um, more in a range, more to meet a, a targeted set of performance metrics rather than specifying, you know, like detailed formulation or whatever it might be. And so I think it's sort of a, a little bit more gradual process. And I think, you know, it's one of these industries that is a little bit slower in moving to new technologies. And that, that's okay, you know, um, but um, I, I think, you know, the industry is, is, is moving more towards sort of bounding the problem a little bit better. So in the next five to 10 years, what do you think we can expect on terms of maybe what you just talked about on being able to set better limits, but also what impact or new novelty do you envision new material systems on the concrete industry? Yeah, so if you look at, the, the Federal Highway Administration has some information on one of the new, one of the materials that I study. It's called ultra high performance concrete. It's one of these fiber reinforced systems. And on their website, they have you know basically a data set that shows different bridges that have been constructed with this material over the last roughly fifteen years. Um, and if you were to plot that, like the number of bridges constructed with these materials over time, what you would see is an exponential growth curve. It's growing at a rapid pace. Each time I go to a conference associated with with sort of these materials, there seem to be more and more people attend these things. You know, it's it's sort of getting more widely adopted. And so, what I think you'll see is is some of these new concrete materials being used, not necessarily to construct every single bridge or the or building, or even w- within a, a structure that's using them throughout the whole structure. What I think you'll see is them being used in really particular areas where we traditionally have damage that occurs, whether it be to due to um, natural hazards or due to just environmental conditioning. 
generally speaking, we know sort of where the weak points are in our infrastructure. It's largely just based on where does water go? <laughs> um, where is the load getting passed through? Um, and we can figure those things out. And so if we use these systems in really targeted areas to, to improve performance, I think what you'll see is that, that exponential growth curve just sort of continuing to go off uh, in the future. So let's now kind of just wrap this discussion up by bringing it uh, to how materials engineers can make an impact since this is an MSC-themed podcast. Uh, from your perspective, where do you think material scientists and engineers fit in the future of this concrete innovation and just this desire for constant improvement? And how can like a current material science student position themselves to make an impact and enter the concrete industry as a whole? And yeah, just kind of uh, continue to make innovations in this space. Yeah. So, you know, even though concrete's been around for a very long time, it's <laughs> from like, if you were to think about the, the knowledge base of, of what we have, there's still a lot to be explored. And so as advances are made in other areas of material science and engineering, for those who work in that industry to figure out, you know, is there a way that I could take a technology that, that I'm using in a totally different application and see, you know, how could I potentially use it in concrete? Um, and so there's other areas. So for example, there, there are these nanofibers that people are, are putting into concrete and it improves uh, a range of different mechanical and durability properties. And so sort of, I guess the willingness of material science and engineers to go and look at a material that maybe isn't that, you know, might not be quite as attractive because they don't think, you know, concrete isn't really thought of as this really neat and cool material, but we use a lot of it. And so if you can think broadly about the ways that, you know, other technologies could be applied in these systems and these materials, I think could really have an impact. And then as it relates to, to students, you know, I think, you know, if you were to take a material science and engineering student, you know, take a class in civil engineering where you learn about concrete materials or try to get a little exposure to it in, in, in one form or another, and you'll find it's a really fascinating material and your work can have a large impact just because of, of how much we use of it. Well, before I let you go, this just came up because you mentioned it, but David and I, in, in like one of our first MSC classes, I think we we read read something about self-healing concrete. Um, I guess, you know, bacteria potentially. I forget, but I was just wondering if that's ever something that 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 you looked into and, and just generally would love to hear your perspective on self-healing con concrete. Yeah, I, you know, I honestly don't know that much about it. I know that there's a few different ways for concrete to self-heal one of which is using bacteria. One of the, some of the challenges with bacteria is it's a very high pH environment concrete. And so having the bacteria being able to thrive in those high pH environments is, can be a little difficult. There's other areas where basically, so like if you can keep crack whisk really small, for example, using these fiber reinforced systems, there may be some unhydrated cement particles that can rehydrate or can get hydrated, I, sh I should say, and close those cracks and stuff like that. So it's definitely a really interesting area. I'm not an expert in it, so I don't want to comment probably beyond that, but yeah. <laughs> it's you know totally interesting, 100%. Actually, the second one we heard about was self-cleaning concrete, where they were using a titanium oxide-based system where the titanium would act as a self-cleaner for dirt. Is that a thing, or uh, is that still maybe uh, not super used in today's society? 
I, I you know, I honestly don't. That's the first time I'm hearing that, so I'm just wow. not. <laughs> I couldn't comment on it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Matt, for joining us today. It was a pleasure hearing about your work and, and your perspective and insights into the concrete industry. Yeah, thank you so much. Great. Thank you, guys. As a materials engineer, we can make an impact in nearly every single industry. But with that versatility comes a lot of options to choose from. So if you have no idea which position or industry is right for you, you're not alone. I've been there, I've done that. But just for a moment, imagine narrowing down your ideal role and company within the week. Imagine being able to secure your dream offer without having to apply to hundreds of job openings. Our online course, MSE Academy, includes video testimonials, resumes, interview prep, and mentorship from materials engineers who have been in your shoes. We also connect our members with companies and industry professionals in our expansive network to help accelerate your job search process as much as possible. To learn more and get started, simply click the link in the show notes below. And if you enroll within the next 24 hours, we'll add three bonus career-related resources. I hope to see you there.